Hi, I'm David Stoker, and I want to welcome you to the Better Life and Recovery hashtag Hope Dealer Movement podcast. As a visible and vocal member of the recovery community since 2009, I'm frequently asked questions and for advice from people all the time. Some are curious, some are still using, some are in recovery, and some people just care about somebody who's currently struggling with a hurt habit or hangout. If people in my community have those questions, I guarantee that people everywhere are looking for answers as well. We started this podcast to give you answers and support because not only is recovery real, it is amazing. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Better Life and Recovery. I'm your host, David Stoker, and today we're going to be talking about a blog by Bill White. Um, the blog was co-authored by Galen Tinder, and it's titled Reflections on Long-Term Recovery. In uh, this blog, what he talks about is some of the unique characteristics that are displayed by people who are in long-term recovery. If you're not familiar with Bill White, you need to be. That needs to change really quickly. He's an amazing historian. He's got a really keen insight into the recovery movement, where it came from, where it's at today. His site is uh, www.williamwhitepapers.com. And you need to go there and subscribe so that you can get each new blog post as they get released. Really, this guy writes amazing things, and he is the first true uh, recovery historian, I think, for the United States. I mean, just everything that he has in together is amazing. So here's a description from his site about what you'll find there. It just says, this site contains, and I kind of uh, paraphrased it. So I kind of paraphrased it, but basically uh, it says uh, it's a history of addiction, treatment, and recovery in the United States. Papers selected for inclusion contain all the articles and monographs authored by William White on the new recovery advocacy movement, recovery management, and recovery-oriented systems of care. It's hoped that this resource library will serve present and future generations of addiction professionals, recovery coaches, and recovery advocates. So I think it's, I think I love it. I love going there. I love reading this stuff. I think it's really interesting. So let's just jump right in and start talking about the blog that he posted on April 12th. I especially liked it because it dealt with something that uh, is a topic I really enjoy speaking on, long-term recovery, and how it's so much more than just removing drug use from an otherwise unchanged life. Clean, right? Uh, that's one of the things people uh, that I hear people say all the time, and I don't like to use it. In fact, I, I, I very seldom if ever use it anymore. To me, uh, clean is just abstinent. And the people that I know in long-term recovery are doing so much more than just being abstinent. So I think clean actually is a disservice to a lot of the people that I know and I see that are working a solid recovery program. Mere abstinence, I mean, it makes people miserable and quite often people are going to return to using. So recovery is making multiple changes in your life. Uh, I think of a song sometimes that I, I will just say the first part of it because it, it gets pretty bad after that. But there used to be that song that was from the windows to the wall. And to me, that's kind of what recovery is. It is from floor to ceiling, um, from wall to wall within a house. It is anything and everything, right? So we're talking about improving socially, emotionally, psychologically, financially, um, so many different aspects to it. 
So what Bill does is he summarizes our recovery as the state of enhanced quality of life and personal character. So they start looking at what are those unique characteristics that people in long-term recovery most often have. Uh, He says, first and foremost, uh, most people in recovery have been freed from daily physical cravings. Kind of that uh, insatiable itch that a lot of people have and the distorted thinking that's at the heart of addiction and that kind of makes us uh, uncomfortable in our own skin. He's... So basically, we've gone to a point where living without drugs no longer seems like a curse, but a gift. Recovery isn't a struggle, right? Uh, He says it's more like a second skin, and I really like that term. Recovery, to somebody in long-term recovery, I think recovery is like kind of like I'm wearing today. I wasn't feeling great today. So because I wasn't feeling very well, I'm in sweats and an old hoodie that I love. It's just comfortable to me now. And that's how recovery is to me now. Recovery is is like that comfortable pair of clothes that I like to slip on. It always makes me feel better. So also he said uh, people aren't in the grip of non-substance cross addictions. And there's one in there I'm still working on. You know, I would say food is one of those non-substance cross addictions I'm working on. So what are some other non-substance cross-addictions? Gambling, sex, chaotic relationships, money, control. And this one may hurt some people. He said they also embrace smoking cessation and other acts of self-care within their personal understanding of recovery. So for me, I'm just now starting to work on getting back in the gym. But to me, that's a big piece of Recovery is taking care of yourself physically, and that's something that I have not been doing very well with lately. I think uh, I think of a book that I like to read, and in it, it talks about the body being a temple. And to tell you the truth, uh, recently, I think because of the stuff I've been putting in it and the lack of exercise, my body's probably more like an amusement park. Then it is a temple. So that's something I'm still working on. And what he said in this article was it's something that people uh, will still tangle with early on. He said, but typically between 10 and 15 years of recovery, people are able to shake off those non-substance cross addictions and understand personal uh, that personal self-care a little bit better. Temptation may still pop up sometimes. But now when they pop up, the people in long-term recovery are surrounded by people they can lean on. So I don't have to try to use willpower or muscle through cravings or whenever things are starting to look bad. Instead, I have people in my life that are solid and sound, and I have interventions that I can use. Uh, People in long-term recovery have stable and emotionally rich relationships. And that's not just a sexual relationship like with a significant other or a partner. That's with family members, friends, colleagues from work. Uh, we've tamed those, disru- those uh, disruptive and self-destructive patterns of behavior that used to complicate our uh, relationships. And now we're able to have these healthy, vibrant relationships that actually make us better. He also said that it didn't matter what pathway it was, whether it was secular, spiritual, or religious pathway of recovery, 
people continue to work an active program that includes things like self-inventory, honestly acknowledging misdeeds and making personal amends and acts of service to other people. He said, we also address with equal determination issues of resentment, the forgiveness of others who have harmed them, right? So so we're starting to let go with some of those things. I mean, when I think of long-term recovery, I don't think of somebody that's sitting there still holding all that anger inside and all that rage inside and all of those resentments inside. You know, I, I think in the program that, that there's a saying that I have always really liked, which is holding resentment is like drinking poison to kill somebody else. And I think that's pretty accurate. I think it's pretty hard to have a solid program of recovery if you're still holding on to hate and anger in your heart for people. I think that's really bad for us internally. And that kind of wipes out some of those gifts of recovery that we could get. And on occasion, I know some people are like, hey, uh, you should work your own program. We shouldn't work other people's programs. Uh, Personally, I could really care less what people think when it comes to that. You know, I used to get a kick out of when somebody would say that to me. I would always be like, well, actually, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I've been a therapist for years. Uh, people pay me money to work their programs with them. And now as a peer, I'm not going to work your program for you, but I'm going to walk beside you while you work that program. And I think that's an important piece, too. <clears throat> so we've got to stop acting like we can't be there to encourage and build people up because that's part of what people in long-term recovery do, and some of that we'll get to here in a minute. So a lot of people uh, reflect on their lives, different qualities, and there's some that are very fundamental to a life of being spiritually well. One of those is humility. One of those is compassion. One of those is honesty. And one of those is gratitude. Uh, There's a dad that we have in the documentary, Not My Child, Brent Swanson. And when he's talking about his daughter, I love what he says. He says, you know, when you get your kids back, he said, you're not even going to recognize the person you get back. He's like, my daughter is grateful for everything. He's like, I've never seen anything like it in my life, but I see it all the time with people in recovery. How amazing would it be if you were just grateful with what you had and happy with what you had? He said, people in recovery, that's what they got. And I would agree with that. I mean, we have tons of things to be grateful for. And no matter how bad our days get, I think there's always, you know, we're always able to find that silver lining, right? Uh, Humility is another big piece. And that's why I think more people should probably be open to multiple pathways of recovery. I don't think you're working a very humble program or a very humble person when you tell people my way of recovery is the only way possible to find recovery. Compassion, I think a ton of us have. As much as people like to say, I really don't care what people think of me, I could give a flip less, Um, I think most people at the end of the day truly care for people and do their best to be a positive force in people's lives. And finally, that honesty piece. I mean, being honest is huge. I remember hearing it talked about as rigorous honesty, but being honest to a level that we didn't used to be. You know, in our addiction, or at least my addiction, I'll speak for myself. In my addiction, I would tell a lie when telling the truth wouldn't have mattered one way or the other. I can literally remember walking away from conversations thinking, why did I lie about that? It didn't even matter. So in recovery, one of those big uh, pillars of recovery is that honesty piece, right? 
So we want to be spiritually well, be humble, be compassionate, be honest, and have gratitude for those amazing things we have in life. You know, I, I was listening to some, uh, the guy, the founder of, uh, oh, what is it? Uh, I think it's Live Water or anyway, but it, it's an organization that digs wells all over the world for countries and listening to the stories of people having to, to walk five miles to get water and carry it back to their house when you know you put it in a, in a glass you couldn't even see through it and that's what they drink on a consistent basis i can walk right over to a tap and fill that up so i think that that's one of the things we need to do is be able to uh to be grateful for those things we do have instead of being mad about the things we don't. Uh, Bill White said people in recovery laugh regularly and deeply with people rather than at people. You know, I, I find that people in recovery have a sense of humor that is second to none. We are able to find joy in humor in just the absurd things that happen in our lives. Um, I remember back in the day getting mad in traffic and now I sit there and laugh at people. I'm like, wow, that knucklehead flew around me going a hundred miles an hour. And now they're back behind me because they flew around me and got in the other lane. You know, I think that we're able to laugh at those things. Even those horrific things that happened to us, we're able to laugh them off, you know? And I think that's because we've learned that, that, that our laughter is healing, right? Um, We've been through so many dramas in our life it, that at a point it seemed like those dramas would never stop. And now that we're at a place where our life is getting better, I think we're able to laugh at those things when they do happen because they're not 24-7 anymore. They're just occasional. And because of that, we're able to laugh and heal through that laughter because we know that it's not going to be like that all the time. Uh, Bill White said that people in long-term recovery tend to be open-minded and inquisitive. You know, um, I realize that I have my views and convictions, and I also realize that some of my views and convictions may be wrong, right? There are a lot of, I, I think, and this puzzles people sometimes, but I always say I like ignorant people uh, because an ignorant person is just somebody who doesn't have the information that they need to make an to give an appropriate answer. So I like an ignorant person because an ignorant person can be educated, Um they're open to that, right? It's not like it's a closed-minded person or somebody that just doesn't want to listen. An ignorant person just doesn't have all the information. And there's a lot of things in my life I know I am very ignorant about. Uh, throw me in front of a book for organic chemistry and literally my head will explode. You know, I, I, there's things I just don't get. Physics, I don't get it. Um, I know that if I jump off a 10-story building, I know that there's physics at work there, but I don't know how to explain them, and that doesn't make them any less effective. So I know that just because I don't know something doesn't mean that it doesn't work. Um, I just know that I have a limited uh, intelligence when it comes to some things. And uh, because of that, I, I think people in uh, recovery realize they don't know everything and it makes, we're like sponges. You know, we want to suck things, suck up knowledge and gain wisdom and continue growing. So I may have an opinion about something, but I want to listen to other people's opinions too. And I think that's another one of those 
really big pillars of somebody in recovery is somebody being open-minded enough to say, I don't know everything and I'm willing to sit down with you and have a conversation. I don't have to go from talking to anger because you have a different viewpoint than me. In fact, I'd rather sit down and talk to you and have a civil conversation where I listen to you, you listen to me, and we're probably not going to change each other's minds, but at least I'm going to learn something. Um, Service is another huge thing. Uh, And this isn't just inside of your recovery support network, right? This is not, hey, I show up to a meeting early so I can unlock and set up the chairs or I chair the meeting. Now, don't get me wrong. uh, That kind of service work is extremely important. If you make yourself vital to a group, then you're more likely to be there, right? Because I don't want to let those people down. So I'm going to show up even if I don't feel good because I know people are depending on me. But what they're talking about in long-term recovery, we realize that there's a life outside of our recovery circle. Uh, There's a life outside of my mutual support group. Right, so I learned that I can, I can be a huge part of the community I live in. I mean, how amazing is that? That now I can sit there and give back to my community and make my community better. Now that I'm a person in recovery, right? I used to make my community worse. Now my community is a better place because I'm able to uh, volunteer in my community and I can show compassion to the larger society uh, that I live in, right? And and this is uh, something that we should be doing. And I think uh, as a person in recovery, the more you do it, the more you're going to want to do it because it's infectious. You know, I mean, literally it is something, it drives you. And whenever we look around at society and when we look at uh, the political discourse that so many people have, we're going to see that, man, This world needs some bright lights, and because I'm a person in recovery, I can be that bright, shining light. Uh, Next thing they talked about was they've worked through childhood traumas, which is one of the most, as they say, tenacious causes of addiction recurrence. Working through doesn't mean putting it behind them or negating the suffering, but rather integrating the trauma experience in a manner that transmutes their suffering into compassion for themselves and others. Uh... I realize that those things have happened, but they're no longer disabling. In fact, what I've learned is I can draw from those things to help other people. If you're familiar with uh, what's known as the ACEs, it's the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey. Uh, I was reading an I was reading an article. The it was uh, actually the beginning of this week, and the article said that there is a bigger link between a high ACEs score and substance use disorder than there is between obesity and diabetes. So what we're saying is there's a lot of people with a lot of trauma and people in long-term recovery have worked through that trauma and they've incorporated it into their life, right? I now draw from this to help other people. The funny thing is a lot of times we don't really get into the nitty gritty, the meat and potatoes of that trauma until multiple years into our recovery. Because there's some things that we still really don't want to dig up, don't want to get into, don't want to share. Um, For those who attend uh, meetings, whether it's Celebrate Recovery, uh, 12-step program, like like Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, if it's Smart Recovery, if it's Life Ring, if it's uh, Refuge Recovery, you know, there's so many different... uh, 
recovery groups out there. But if somebody is engaged in a recovery group, they will still continue to attend at least one a week. They usually have a sponsor. They usually sponsor other people. Um, They will periodically brush up on their steps if that's part of their program. Sometimes they'll even facilitate step studies. Um, But this is the part I really like. At the same time, they are non-dogmatic about the program and take ample advantage of other aids in recovery. So what that means is even though I may be going to my meeting, be it Smart Recovery, AA, or Celebrate Recovery, I may still be using cognitive behavioral tools or mindfulness tools or meditation, prayer, yoga, you know, different, I may be using different things in my life that are going to make my life better. I don't just sit there dogmatically and think all I have to do is go to this meeting and bam, I'm cured, right? It says that there's other things that I realize I need to do and I realize that there's more that's not found within my mutual support group that's going to make my life better. Um, He also says that in the beginning, they told stories of their past, affirming that they didn't want to return to their former way of life. Then they began to contrast the present and past as they sought to construct a new identity centered in a new set of values. And then they became at ease talking about their experiences and their feelings, literally talking their way into a more transparent existence, leaving behind their former, wow, big words, um, duplicious, self-absorbed, self-contained personage. And in constructing a new identity, they face the challenge of shame that's typically rooted in the past and revitalized by present events and relationships. Um, shame is one of the absolute worst things we can have that in our life that will keep us separated from recovery, right? That constant voice that we have in our head whispering, you're not good enough. You don't deserve this. Um, you're not worth, you're not worthy of being in recovery. You'll never be able to help anybody. So what's really cool is that, uh, they found that shame is actually defeated by vulnerability by a, Developing exactly the wide open stance toward the world that shame warns us against. So what that means is I'm able to say, you know what? I'm not going to be perfect. And that's awesome. Isn't that a great thing to realize I don't have to be perfect. I'm still going to make mistakes and people are still going to like me and still be my friends. And if because I make mistakes or have slips, people have a problem with it, they can pound sand. So I think that's an amazing thing is realizing that, uh, Shame doesn't have to control me, right? Um, Feeling guilty about something is a perfectly okay feeling. Guilt says, you know what? I messed up. Oops, I'm going to try this again. Shame says, I messed up, so I'm a horrible person. This is what I'm always going to do, what I'm always going to be. So shame is more of a a, a title, a describer, something that we take ownership of, uh, that, that we let control us and guide us. Whereas guilt is perfectly fine because everybody is going to do things that they don't feel great about, right? Like me waking up and eating two donuts this morning that I know I didn't need, but I wasn't feeling good. I felt a little guilty about it. So, you know, now I'm equaling it out. I'm drinking a diet Coke. So obviously that will level out for those two donuts that I ate this morning. And now I don't have to feel guilty about it. Please somebody tell me that, that I'm right. What do they say? Can I get an amen? Right? So just kidding. Um, But seriously, 
we've learned to live with shame and accept that we are infallible creatures. That we're fallible creatures, my bad. Um, they also, I uh, also said that people in long-term recovery have developed the capacity to listen closely and effect- effectively to other people. And that one of the particular things people in recovery are able to do is listen to have empathy and compassion for people's pain. Uh, I always go with hope dealers. You know, uh, I talk about that all the time. I feel a hope dealer is somebody who has been through something and now they're able to because they've overcame it, give hope to other people that are going through the same thing. Uh, Bill White, what he talks about are wounded healers, right? We use our own survival to help others who face similar threats and opportunities. So we've been able to plunge deeply into our agonies, our defeats, our failures, and we've emerged from that that cocoon and we've metamorphosed. Metamorphosed. Anyway, we have changed um, into a, a receptacle that's full of hope and love for other people. And now because of that, we have hope and purpose in our lives beyond just me. You know, I have, uh, I have transcended the nature of my addiction and now I am able to use that, um, to love other people instead of hate other people or myself. So now I look at not only healing myself, but I'm working to heal my family, uh, the community I live in, and, you know, in some ways, maybe even impact the world positively. So, I don't know. I would. He ends with this. He says, we've met some wonderful people through our recovery journeys, people who lived full, meaningful lives in recovery and exhibited exemplary qualities of character and styles of daily living. In closing, we should also note that we have met others not in recovery who share these traits and lifestyles, but who had survived their own dark night of the soul and it had emerged as different and quite remarkable people. Surviving life-threatening events or conditions have the potential to be life-transforming, taking people beyond survival and healing to the status of healers in their own right. We hope your life has been similarly blessed by your encounters with such people. And I think what that's saying and what I always try to tell people is... Just because somebody isn't in long-term recovery just or has never had a substance use disorder, I mean, literally, we're a minority of the population, right? In the United States, they say there's 23.5 million people in long-term recovery, another 22 million people with an active substance use disorder. And because I suck at math, I round that up to 50 million. So we're between like one-sixth and one-seventh of the population here in the United States. That means the other six-sevenths of the population doesn't have a substance use disorder or isn't in recovery from one. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean they're not jacked up in their own way, right? Whether it's an eating disorder, uh, maybe they're a type A personality that works 80 hours a week. Uh, maybe they have power and control issues, codependency issues. They like chaotic relationships. They have a gambling problem, eating disorder, right? There's all kinds of other issues people have. And I can learn just as much from them as I can from somebody that has a substance use disorder. It's weird. And I think Celebrate Recovery is what really helped me with that. In Celebrate Recovery, I was surrounded by people that didn't have a substance use disorder. I mean, some of us did, but I would say it was the majority that didn't have a substance use disorder at one of the first Celebrate Recoveries that I started going to. And one of the cool things is every other week, somebody shares their testimony of recovery. And when I would listen to somebody else's testimony, 
whether it was somebody with a substance use disorder, somebody who was uh, codependent, uh, somebody with an eating disorder, I was surprised at how similar our early childhoods were. If you don't know much about my early childhood, I mean, my first memories being molested by a babysitter. I grew up in a house where there was a lot of anger. Um, My dad had a drinking problem, and in fifth grade, my mom took us to her dad's, my grandpa's, who was the kind of guy that would beat me and then call him to school and say he's going to help me in the field for a few days and then send me back to school after the bruises and the cuts had healed up. And that's the kind of guy he was. And, And I heard a lot of other people that shared those same stories of physical and sexual abuse when they were kids, of feeling unwanted, of never feeling like they fit in. And what I realized is, we had similar traumas, but we drove different vehicles to try to escape and numb. Where I found out the summer before seventh grade that when I drank, smoked weed, or ate a bunch of mini thins, that it, uh, it numbed me to my past. And the more I did it in that group, the more I felt like I was finally part of something instead of always feeling like I was different. So I always say I didn't have a drug problem. I had a drug solution, right? My problem was those traumas. And what I found was that those people that had the same traumas, instead of marijuana or alcohol or other drugs, uh, at an early age, they found that food helped self-harm, chaotic relationships. They found that those things helped them escape and numb. So that's what really helped me, and through that, I figured out that I could learn just as much from somebody about how to deal with life, as they like to say in uh, the rooms, how to deal with life on life's terms, as I could from somebody who also had a substance use disorder. What's amazing is some of these people have been living life on life's terms for 40, 50 years, right? They've always had uh, done the correct thing. They've always, what's the word I'm looking for? Um... Anyway, they, they've always uh, been able to, to do the, the next right thing, right? That was just something that they've always done. And it's amazing how much we can learn from those people. So, instead, so I think that's what that's saying is people in long-term recovery realize that I can learn from people outside of the rooms just like I can re- learn from people in the rooms. I can learn from people outside of whatever my recovery support is just, just as much as I can learn from people inside. Not that it's not important to have those relationships, but don't rule people out. And for the longest time, I think especially in my early recovery, I kind of did that. I was like, sorry, if they're not in recovery too. And fortunately, that changed really quickly because I've made some pretty, pretty amazing. I've got some pretty amazing relationships that I've been able to make. So that is kind of a rundown of Bill White. And his article on long-term recovery, like I said, if you are not subscribed to get Bill White's blogs, go to www.williamwhitepapers.com and go on there and put your email address in and subscribe so that you get them. He has so much good information and some of the stuff you'll find on there. I mean, he's been blogging for years. He's got excerpts from, I think he's written like nine books and he's got like over 300 published articles. I mean, go in there and look at some of this stuff because he literally talks about how the treatment movement started in the United States, talking about you know uh, how it built up from the women's temperance movement and the Oxford House to develop into what we have now. 
So, and not to mention talking about all the amazing things that people in recovery are doing now, the advocates and the people out there. So I would highly recommend going to his site and finding out what you can. So, um, I think here's where I'm going to kind of cut off. Uh, you know, I, I love the fact that I'm able to get on here and hopefully impact somebody. Uh, I also continue to need, uh, ideas and topics. I'm also, I'm going to start interviewing some people. So especially if you live locally, uh, here in Springfield or if, uh, anywhere around the state of Missouri, really, because I travel a lot. Uh, if I'm traveling up by you, maybe I, I can come up a couple hours early. It generally takes about 90 minutes to sit down. You, me, a microphone, a computer, no camera. And I've got 20 questions I will ask you for the 10 questions segment. Also, if you're a family member, I want to do the same thing with family members. Sit down, ask those questions, uh, because I think family members have so much to offer to the community. I also think that people in recovery have so much to offer to the community. It was a cool thing when I used to work at Carol Jones Recovery Center. Uh, I would do a group, and one of the things I would do is the 12 steps made simple, made easy. And I would just kind of break them down and simplify them over the course of a an hour-long group. And it never failed if we had students that were there, like grad students, nursing students that were in there observing. Never failed. I'd have at least one of them after that class was over come up and go, you know, I don't have a, a drug problem and I could use what you just talked about in my life. I think that these are things that help anybody and everybody. So, you know what, please, if you're in recovery, be visible and vocal with it. Let people know the amazing things that you're doing today in your community to make it better, how much your life's improved so that they know what recovery looks like. Because far too often people hear about addiction, they know what addiction looks like, but they have no clue what recovery looks like. And because of that, we have people that are suffering because there's that feeling that people never find recovery. In closing, I just want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Please join us every week for new episodes. If you want to connect with us further, if you have any questions, topics you'd like to hear in the future, or maybe you would like to be on the podcast sometime, you can connect with us at betterlifeandrecovery.com. Uh, there's a Better Life and Recovery page on Facebook, or you can, uh, we're on Twitter, uh, B-L-I-R underscore N-P-O. Also, this podcast is part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network. You can find out more about the network at studiodna.media. Thanks a lot. Y'all have a great week. Hi there. My name's Jack, and I love horrible movies. Each week on the Horrible Movie Podcast, producer Phil, a guest, and I talk about a horrible movie. We talk about the actors, directors, the budget, the box office, and like thereof. You also get silly songs, fake commercials, and too much fun to list on this promo. Available everywhere you get your podcast. Remember, just because it's from Hollywood doesn't mean it isn't horrible. <laughs>